Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Our breaking news, we are less than one hour away, everyone, from what looks like maybe thousands of auto workers walking off the job. The deadline is midnight. I mean, you see the countdown clock right now on your screen. Don't turn away. That's going to be very important because it could mean that production could actually grind to a halt at General Motors, at Ford, at Stellantis, the company that builds Jeep, Ram, Dodge, and Chrysler brands. Now, the UAW president, Sean Fain, saying just a little while ago, if there's no deal by midnight, that means that three plants are going to go on strike. Tonight, we call on three units to stand up and go on strike at midnight if we do not reach a tentative agreement in the next two hours. We're calling on GM, Wentzville Assembly, Local 2250 in Region 4 to stand up and strike. We're calling on Stellantis, Toledo Assembly Complex, Local 12 in Region 2B to stand up and strike. And we're calling on Ford, Michigan Assembly Plant, Final Assembly and Paint Only, Local 900 in Region 1A to stand up and strike. These three units are being called to stand up and walk out on strike at midnight tonight. That's 57 minutes away, everyone. We've got much more to come as that midnight deadline is quickly approaching us. Plus, for the first time now in American history, the Department of Justice has now filed charges against the son of a sitting president, an adult child, I will note, of course. But Hunter Biden is accused of lying when he bought a gun. Why? Well, they say he falsely swore that he was not addicted to illegal drugs, even though he was struggling with the crack cocaine addiction at the time. Now, there's the threat of a trial upending, of course, his father's reelection campaign. And we have news on another trial that could upend, well, another presidential campaign. A Fulton County, Georgia judge has rejected D.A. Fonnie Willis's plan to try Donald Trump and all of his co-defendants together on October 23rd. That's like a month away, everyone. Now, there's no trial date set as we're sitting here today for the former president, but it's likely that Trump won't actually face a trial until we're thinking maybe next year, which, of course, brings us right into the heat of the race for the White House. But I want to begin with the looming auto worker strike. This deadline is now less than an hour away. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich is in Detroit as we speak at the UAW headquarters What's happening? Laura, we are outside UAW headquarters here in Detroit. We're just moments ago. UAW President Sean Fain made the announcement about which three plants the UAW will be targeting in the first wave of their strike. Those three plants are a Salantis plant in Toledo, Ohio, a uh, Ford plant 
in Wayne, Michigan, and a GM plant in Missouri. That will represent about 12,700 members who will be walking out at midnight if the UAW cannot come to an agreement with the big three automakers in the next hour. Here is that announcement from Sean Fain. We've been clear. Midnight on the evening of September 14th is a deadline. UAW family, that deadline is nearly here. Tonight, for the first time in our history, we will strike all three of the big three at once. And we are hearing from Ford right away that they received a counterproposal at 8 p.m. this evening from the UAW after waiting days for that counter. Ford saying that the UAW only came down slightly in their wage demands. Ford, of course, offered 20% in wage increases over four years. We know the union from the get-go has been asking for 40% in wage increases over four years. And Ford saying that the UAW made it clear that if they did not agree to the union's counterproposal this evening, they would head on strike. And we are expecting Sean Fain, UAW president, to be in Wayne, Michigan at that Ford facility at midnight if this agreement does not come together in the next hour. Laura? Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much. I want to bring in a man who knows a lot about what is going on in these negotiating rooms. He's the former UAW president, Bob King. He joins us now. Bob, thank you for being here. I mean, you heard Sean Fain say they're going to strike all of the big three all at once. This is historic. It could be extraordinarily significant. As you well know, this is a, a very big deal. Take me inside the negotiating room because you've certainly been there before. What's happening tonight? Well, hopefully the parties are really working hard to find a, an agreement that would be good enough to be ratified by the membership. And, you know, it, it's frustrating because, in my view, the companies have played a lot of brinkmanship bargaining rather than good faith bargaining. They delayed and delayed and delayed giving their proposals to the UAW. There were minimal, minimalist proposals to begin with. Uh, and they would never, ever, ever get ratified by the membership. And, they, you so, know, that's the other thing that people have to re re yeah, realize. These are member demands. These are Sean's demands. Sean has visited every plant. He's been talking to the members. He's been doing Facebook Live. So he's reflecting the frustration and anger of the membership. And I hope the companies listen to him and give a far better offer than they put on the table so far. The point you raise is not lost on me. I mean, the idea we're talking about the UAW president, Sean Fain, you've been in that position um, and the minimalist notions of what's being offered, the delay he's been very vocal about as well. But you also heard, likely earlier today, the Ford CEO talking about Farley. And he had been blasting that very president, Sean Fain, and he is claiming that Fain is not negotiating in good faith. In fact, here is the Chicago Tribune editorial board. And I want to read a quote from what they have to say. They say, quote, Fain is the most belligerent union boss we've seen in a long time. So my question to you, Bob, do you think that Fain has gone too far in his negotiating tactics, given, of course, as you say, these are member demands? And not at all. You can see that bias in the Tribune right away. A UA, he's not a UAW boss. The boss in the UAW is a membership. 
Sean, who's elected by the membership, he reports to the membership. He's got a responsibility to negotiate an agreement that he thinks honestly can get ratified. And it's sad to me that the companies aren't really responding to what he is expressing to them on behalf of the membership. So, so I, I think end, that's yeah. a really unfair characterization. And I think Sean and the rest of the leadership team, Chuck Browning, Mike Booth, uh, Richie, Tor Richie, are all doing a great job. Richie Boyer are all doing a great job for this membership in, in presenting their demands, their voicing their concerns and their frustrations. Clearly, the frustrations are being heard. We are 51 minutes away from a potential strike against all the big three all at once, to use his own words. At the end of the day, people do want to work. They want to be able to have, and they describe it in terms of what their demands are, the dignity of work that is appreciated financially in other, other ways that's comparable to what it ought to be. And one guest earlier on our programming talked about being elevated beyond not just the to the middle class, but beyond the 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 um, upper poor is what is felt for so many people thinking about how hard they're working. But I want to understand, given that people want to work, is it advantageous to have someone holding a hard line like this at the very top? Is this what should happen in these negotiations? I think absolutely, given the situation we're in, given these companies made $250 billion in the last 10 years, only because of our sacrifices. I was there, we made the sacrifices. And to me, it's a tremendous level of injustice that members have been left with five different tiers. Nobody believes you should be doing the same job on an assembly line, getting different rates of pay, the same job, working for the same corporation, the same union, have different rates of pay. That's just not, to me, morally sustainable. It has a tremendous impact on employee morale. Again, Sean is expressing on behalf of the membership what it will take to get an agreement that can get ratified. It doesn't do, and they, they should be wise enough and experienced enough to understand this. And I'm disappointed with Jim Farley, honestly, making the comments he did today. He's got to understand, he should understand, that Sean's got to get an agreement that can get ratified by the membership. And they're a far way away from that right now, in my view. Well... We are 49 minutes away from when they could actually walk right now, and it could be debilitating, as you well know, which is part of the leverage that the people who actually are keeping the company afloat certainly have right now. What will happen next? We'll have to wait and see. Bob King, thank you so much. Thank you. I want to bring in Stephen Dully, everyone. He's the director of labor policy at Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Thank you for being here on what is really a significant moment in history. The idea, to quote the words of, of Sean Fain, going against all the big three all at once. We haven't seen this before, even in a summer, frankly, where you've had strike after strike in a variety of different sectors or even the threat to strike in some significant business sectors of our economy. Now, Stephen, you say that if the UAW gets what they're asking for, though, it's going to hurt them in the long run. Can you explain why you feel that way? Absolutely. And I think I'll, I'll offer a counterpoint to former President King, which is while the UAW has to have a contract that it can ratify, Stellantis, Ford, uh, GM each need a contract that they can compete with. And the terms that are being proposed by the UAW, if accepted, would put all three of the big three at genuine risk of going out of business in the near future. 
Well, when you look at that, we did hear from Farley at one point talking about if you had that significant pay raise, although he was challenged, and rightfully so, about the pay raise that people in his own position are in, um, in leadership roles of these big three, but that he said that you could, it would go bankrupt, that they could not possibly compete. It would take a huge toll, not just the bottom line, but really take the bottom out from underneath them. Is that true, though? Because for some, they might say, well, hold on. Isn't there a price markup on some of these vehicles? Aren't there ways to um, account for the elevation of salaries in other areas? Is the CEO, at least Farley, correct that there could very well be a bankruptcy in the future if they were to submit and, and meet these demands? I genuinely think so. So currently, the big three pay $65 an hour in labor cost for workers in the domestic manufacturing industry. Foreign competitors in non-unionized environments pay roughly 55. Tesla pays 45. If the UAW's demands are met, that's going to result in labor cost of over $100 an hour. That cost has to be built into electric vehicles that are already expensive, that are sitting on lots longer than traditional internal combustion vehicles, um, and that just don't seem to be in particularly high demand right now. So when you look at that kind of market incentive there with demand and supply, I think you're in a scenario where unless EVs become significantly more profitable for the big three, um, increased labor cost and diminished sales could very rapidly eat into their very existence. Well, certainly the union must be aware of obvious electric vehicles and some of the issues in terms of how long they're on the lots the market incentives, the way, in in fact, the supply and the demand have to be met to have a fair market value of not only labor, but also the cost of goods in this economy. Do you think that the union is negotiating in good faith then? Well, I think they're trying to get the best deal for their membership that they can. And that's perfectly understandable. Uh, But when you look at at the market and how EVs have gone so far in this transition um, with the incentives, the mandates that various states are issuing, uh, the money coming in from the federal government that's propping this industry up, despite all of that, Ford still lost $4.5 billion on its EV division this year, and that's in a year of record profits. Well, as we move away from those internal combustion vehicles and into a purely electric market, if that trend continues, uh, that's a huge problem for the big three. Stephen Dolly, thank you. And again, this is part of a targeted strike. And so this is even historic within the historic nature of what we're talking about right now. Countdown clock is on. What will they do? So good to talk to you, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Look, we've got a lot more to come on the looming auto worker strike. This is so significant, everyone. The deadline is now less than an hour away. And one of the big questions everyone's asking now is, what would this do? What could this do to the U.S. economy? Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. There's no deal yet, and we are less than now 45 minutes away from a potential United Auto Workers strike. Now, it will not only upend the auto industry, but likely the U.S. economy as well. I mean, just a 10-day strike could cost the economy, get this, $5.6 billion. I did say a 10-day, $5.6 billion. It could also send the state of Michigan into a recession and even drive up inflation. I want to I dive into this with Justin Wolfers, a professor of economics and public policy at the University of Michigan, because you don't want to hear me try to recite the laws of the economy, everyone. I got the supply, demand. That's it. That's where it goes, Justin. But I want to talk to you about just how long before the U.S. economy could start to feel the pressure of a strike this significant. Laura, here I... I I really want to try and calm some of the viewers down a little bit. Okay. Um, one thing that's important to recognise is the company's got a big stake here in trying to convince the federal government this is a big deal, that if the federal government doesn't help solve this problem, it'll tank the economy. The union's got a big stake in trying to convince everyone this is a big economic deal because they want uh, Ford and GM stockholders to put a lot of pressure on them to solve it. The reality, though, is um, this is not a manufacturing economy that we live in. Um, the uh, auto sector as a whole is 0.7% of the entire US economy. Uh, the unionized sector is half of that. Um, if they shut down the plants, that will definitely inflict some pain. But for most people, if it's hard to get a car this month, what are you going to do? Probably wait till the strike's over and buy the car then, or maybe buy from a different company who's not closed. So I think the overall macroeconomic impacts here the impact on your viewers uh, directly for them is not going to be that great. Well, what about the fact that this is a targeted strike? I mean, not every single facility is being looked at. The, the notion of a targeted strike, I think, for many people is quite unique in that this is assembly. I mean, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, a few blocks away from a Ford assembly plant. And I remember thinking about this is just one small part of the overall pie of everything that's going on. They are strategic in being targeted here of uh, particular areas. Does that impact how we should view this from sort of the 10,000 foot view? Absolutely. So, Laura, I, I was talking about the, the big picture, the whole economy, because you've got viewers all over the country. Now, I'm coming to you from Michigan. It's a much bigger part of our right. economy right here. And so I feel quite confident that the effects throughout most of the country on average are not going to be very large. Of course, the effects on the striking workers, the effects on the auto parts manufacturers in the surrounding cities, and the effects in particular parts of the economy, and in particular the Midwest, are, are going to be a lot more intense. Um I still think we don't want to overstate the case, but uh, we're going to feel the pain here in the Midwest. And if you're somewhere else, you're probably enjoying a warmer winter and you're not worrying quite as much about the strike. Well, that's that's part of the interesting notion of our national economy and the leverage and why it's so significant to certain parts of the population. That's part of what they're talking about, though, in that they can feel as though they're being disregarded because 
what is acutely felt and experienced by workers in this industry, and as you call a non-manufacturing economy, because it's not universally experienced for the workers, they feel as though they get the short end of the stick time and time again. But then the people of the economy lean in when they talk about prices of cars, of course. And you mentioned, you know, buying a car as one example. How much could a strike hike, um, strike hike prices for new and used cars? Well, we've actually had a really nice experiment of what happens when it's really hard to get cars. Not a nice experiment. It was a miserable one. It was the COVID uh, pandemic. And that shuttered a lot of factories throughout the country. And it also shuttered international trade as well. And we saw that caused car prices to spike a lot. Laura, can I come back to something you said? Because I think it's really important. Um, For a lot of people throughout the economy, as inflation has risen, a lot of them have enjoyed some wage rises to try and catch up a little bit. That's not been the case for the UAW. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's a union sector, they signed a four-year contract. They signed it way back four years ago before we'd ever heard of COVID and before we ever saw the post-COVID inflation research. So workers throughout a lot of the rest of the economy have actually had a little bit of a chance to catch up to some of the worst of the pain of inflation That's not been true for these folks because they've been on a very long-run contract and, interestingly, that last contract had no cost-of-living clauses in it at all. So they've really fallen behind more than other workers have, which is why some of the numbers you just showed on your screen might strike some of your viewers as looking pretty big. But that's because those folks really have fallen behind a little more than other workers have. That's such an important point, and I'm glad that you underscored it because, you know, especially when you talk about the union contracts, the cycle in which you sign them, you know, the not not being able to contemplate one of the biggest impacts to our economy in, I would say, probably modern American history, obviously, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, at least one thing, not to have that contemplated. And now on the back end, trying to resolve it, really important. Justin Walfers, thank you so much for breaking it all down for us. I appreciate it. A pleasure. Everyone, we're going to be live following this impending strike. We're going past midnight because... I don't need to sleep. I need to hear from you all and help us to inform what's going on and what's happening in the world around us. Also, there's a new first in Washington today. For the first time ever, a sitting president's son has been indicted. We're going to tackle that next and figure out what Hunter Biden could be facing. Here we are. Back to unprecedented times, everyone, because for the first time, a son of a sitting president is now facing federal charges. Not hypothetical, actual indictments now. Special Counsel David Weiss hitting Hunter Biden with three gun-related felonies. Now, if he is convicted of all those counts, the president's son could face years in prison for allegedly lying on a form about his drug addiction, when buying a gun back in 2018. I want to bring in CNN correspondent Kara Scannell, also CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams, also former federal prosecutor and contributing writer for Politico and Kush Cardori. I'm so glad you're all with us. I want to bring in with you here, Kara, because help us understand. I mean, we remember this plea deal over some that really imploded in the courtroom, but how do we get from that implosion to these serious charges so soon after that all fell apart? Yeah, I mean, this plea deal that was initially announced in June was um, Hunter Biden would have pled guilty to two tax misdemeanor charges and then avoided prosecution 
on the gun possession charge if he agreed to meet certain conditions for a period of 24 months. Well, the Republicans in the House had said that that appeared to be a sweetheart deal. Then when he showed up in court in late July, the judge had a lot of questions about it. She had questions about how it was structured and whether it was constitutional. So she told both sides, the government and Hunter Biden's team, to go back and try to work it out. And in that time, that is when uh, then U.S. Attorney David Weiss, a Trump appointee who held over, asked to be elevated to a special counsel. And that is when the prosecution team said that they could not reach a deal with Hunter Biden and that they were going to move full steam ahead. That brings us to today with this indictment of three felony charges. And one of the reasons why this was sped up a bit also is because the statute of limitations would run out next month because that's when Hunter Biden bought this gun in 2018 of October. And that is when he allegedly made these false statements on the ATF form that he was used to purchase the gun by saying he wasn't using or addicted to drugs. And that same form was given to the uh, firearms dealer. And then, of course, he was also charged with possessing the gun, all of them serious felony charges. Now, his lawyer, Abby Lowell, has come out swinging tonight saying that essentially prosecutors are bending to the to the MAGA right side of the Republican Party. Uh, Abby Lowell was on Aaron Burnett earlier tonight, and he says that even the nature of the charges that were filed today were very unusual. Take a listen. This office has never brought a charge like this against anybody. When they are bringing this charge, it's either because somebody has had the gun in the commission of a crime, they have bought multiple guns, they are a straw purchaser for somebody else, or they're a felon in possession. That, none of that is true about Hunter Biden. Now, Lowell says that they will fight this in court. He does think that their earlier deal is still valid, and he is going to question the constitutionality of the charges. Laura. When's he in court again? So that hasn't been decided yet. I mean, we're waiting to see when that's going to hit the docket. Usually the person who is charged comes in at some negotiated time to have an arraignment where he will be asked what his plea is. He'll enter his plea, which we expect to be not guilty. And then the question of bail. In this case, there's not expected to be any government request to detain him. So he'll be released. And then this case will be working toward trial, which will fall during his father's presidential campaign. Laura. So important. Let's get to the panel as well on this point. Um, thank you, Kara. Elliot, um, I'm glad you guys are both here because I think the, the big question so many people are asking, number one, is everyone keeps saying this is unheard of. There's never been a case like this. You don't charge this outright. It's, maybe it's an add-on. Maybe it's just for a felon in possession, but not for a user. Is it strange that this, these are kind of the standalone charges? Not that it's not maybe violative of the, of the black letter law if you do do this, but is it strange that this was a standalone? I would say it's strange insofar as it's not often charged, but there's any number of crimes in the federal code that are still unlawful conduct, right? You can still be prosecuted for the conduct. It's just the Justice Department doesn't charge it very commonly. I think the far bigger question related to that is that there's sort of a bit of a legal cloud over the particular statute he's charged with in the Fifth Circuit uh, down in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, it has, uh, you know, uh, they've already issued a decision um, calling into question even the ability to bring this charge in the first place. That's going to come up again. It, I wouldn't be shocked if the judge threw it out, um, at least the possession charge there. And we can talk about that a little more. Well, that case you're talking about, for everyone's um, sake, is really about what is the criteria for disarming someone? What is the criteria for deciding who is able to have their Second Amendment rights there? Is it enough that you had engaged in prior behavior that's nonviolent, that's drug-related? Is that what the founding and the framers thought about when they talk about, about it? Or is it a matter of, look, as a government, they can put all sorts of um, boundaries around your right to actually possess. 
But there's the question that Abe Lowell is talking about on Kush, and that is the idea of it being that this charge, these three, violate the plea agreement. And we saw it all implode in that courtroom, right? Well, we didn't watch because it wasn't like Georgia and actually televised cameras. Hint, judiciary, put cameras in the courtroom. But if you're thinking about it being violative of the Constitution or that it violates that agreement, is he right? So I, I agree with Elliot, right? I mean, the fact that there is an unusual charging theory doesn't necessarily make it invalid. I do think the constitutional issue is going to be litigated. It's going to be a live one. Um, but in terms of, like, the other potential defenses that he might be able to, to, to bring out, I mean, this is going to be a hard charge to, to sort of defend against, absent some sort of constitutional sort of defense, because he's essentially admitted it already uh, in the course of his book. Um, so I think this is going to be somewhat of an unusual uphill battle for Hunter Biden. Um, and, you know, it's also not the end of this story because prosecutors have said that they intend to bring additional charges against him related to the tax charges. As to the diversion agreement, whether or not that's still in effect, that's Abby Lowell's point. It's an argument that they intend to, 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 to advance. I think that's another one that they're going to have an uphill battle. The, the agreement was not fully executed uh, by the court. The judge had serious concerns about it, inclu- including constitutional concerns. She's presiding over this case. I find it very hard to believe she's going to say, oh, this agreement that I had all these problems with that you guys signed but I never signed is going to somehow bind me and prevent Wait, there's the one, There's one issue on, the, on that. Though. I want you to jump, jump sure. in here, but I just want to be clear. When we talk about the constitutional issues the judge raised, it wasn't that she thought, she didn't seem to think it was a sweetheart deal the way the talking points go. She's talking about they essentially wanted her to be a part of a contractual agreement to do a fact-finding mission to figure out whether he had actually complied with the terms of it. I know we, we were talking about this, but that's so important to really underscore that it's not the judge was not somehow thinking the political aspect. It was more so this isn't normally what I what I do. Do you guys know what you're doing here? And it turns out there was a problem. But the point you were going to make? No, what I was going to say, a counterpoint, let's all three of us take off our prosecutor hats for a second and put on defense attorney hats. And I actually think they have some defenses here legally yeah. too. Uh, and particularly just the fact that if what he did was admit to, the, to something in the book, said that, yeah, I smoked rock for a lot of my life, I don't know if that's enough to get you a conviction for that possession offense. What he could say in court, this is just as a defense attorney, how, how one could defend it. What you would say is, well, he's acknowledged his substance abuse in the past, but no one can acknowledge that either at the time he possessed the firearm or the time he filled out the form, he was high or smoking or addicted at that time. It's just how a defense attorney would plant a seed of doubt in a jury's head that I think you might, mm-hmm. it's plausible. It's not outside the realm of possibility. But yeah, I mean, look, he said I was addicted to drugs at some points in my life. So it's, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, sure, every criminal uh, defense can be uh, stood up on the basis of just fighting every element, right? The government has the burden of proof on every single element, including all the elements in seemingly simple crimes. So, yeah, you can try to sort of uh, 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 take a a stab at any one of those elements, including as Elliot described them. Um, But it'll be hard. I mean, cases like this are hard for people to defend against. A drug user being charged in this way, very unusual. Abby Lowell is right. But the more common fact pattern, like the straw purchaser case or the felon in possession case, these these cases plead out all the time. There could be some strange bedfellows ahead in terms of the gun rights advocates and those who are talking about this very case. Ankush Elliott, thank you so much. Stick around, though, everyone. Donald Trump is admitting that he thought about pardoning himself. Hmm. Would it have worked? We'll talk about that next. And stick around because that countdown clock, you see, 
We're now minutes away from the United Auto Workers strike and we'll be live on the air if, looks like maybe when, that strike happens. Tonight, former President Trump is admitting for the first time that he, in fact, did consider pardoning himself while he was still in office. He told NBC's Meet the Press that he's not actually ruling out a pardon if he's reelected in 2024. I could have done a pardon of myself. You know what I said? I have no interest in even thinking about it. I never even wanted to think about it. And I could have done it. And all of these questions you're asking me about the fake charges, you wouldn't be asking me because it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful thing for a president. Um, I was told by some people that these are sick lunatics that I'm dealing with. Give yourself a pardon. Your life will be a lot easier. I said, I would never give myself a pardon. Even if you were reelected in this moment? Well, I think it's very unlikely. What, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. You mean because I challenged an election? They want to put me in jail? I'm back now with Elliot Williams, and we're joined by CNN legal analyst and former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore. Let me begin with you here, Michael, on this very important point here. I mean, first of all, the president cannot pardon for state-level charges. Of course, we know there's two cases that he's indicted, obviously, in New York and Georgia. But the idea that he might be able to or considering to pardon himself is really wild, wild west territory. What do you make of the possibility of that being constitutional? Well, I'm, I'm glad to be with both of you. I don't think it's a settled question on whether or not a president can self-pardon. There was an old 1974, I think, opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice that said, in fact, a president could not do that. But it is uncharted waters. And so it's. I'm not sure that the legal scholars are as certain of his ability to do it as he seems to be here. You're right. Uh, it would have no effect whatsoever on the state charges that he faces. And, and the truth is he may not need it if, in fact, he were to get elected. He could simply direct that the cases be dismissed or that the prosecutions be terminated uh, at some period of time. So, um, you know, it's a lot of talk. And, and the question, I guess, remains as well, whether or not he even has the Constitution within himself to acknowledge that he did something wrong to where he might need a pardon. That may be his biggest obstacle yet. Well, you heard it, Elliot. I mean, we talked to Kristen Welker about this very point. And, and Michael's totally right, right? The idea that you would be able to have to consider pardoning your if he wins the presidency, he says he will try to direct his DOJ on a number of things, including trying to um, indict his political rivals, which is part of it. But let's focus on Georgia for a second, because what's one of the cases if he is convicted, there is no pardon power available. Georgia tonight, they already have a case there, um, 18 defendants strong. They're going to have only two trials October 23rd, only two I mean, right. defendants in one trial. What do you make of what the lawyers are thinking tonight, knowing they're going to have an advance notice on everything else? Right. Look, you get a window into the logistics of getting a case to trial, Laura. And um, it was never going to be the case that they were going to try all 19 people uh, in five weeks. That would have been ludicrous. It would have been totally absurd. Uh, so I think all of the other 17 attorneys are watching how this plays out. How does the judge rule what, um, you know, what deference, not deference, but what um, space does he give to the prosecutors to argue their case and so on? Um, those rulings are going to potentially have an impact on what happens, in, you know, for the rest of the case. But this is a sort of 
a mess brewing when you have this many defendants, that much law, that many witnesses. Uh, we're going to see a lot more confusion, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as this gets closer and closer. Put your defense cap on, Michael, as well, because, you know, every great prosecutor has to contemplate, as Elliot has done as well, what the defense and what the other side is going to be thinking about, trying to have a bit of a chess move. You know, you move this direction, I'll then do this. They have already expressed interest to talking to grand jurors. And the judge was open to that if they could vet the questions in advance. Think like a defense attorney right now as to what benefit those interviews and those questions could actually provide in your defense. Well, I do think, and you know from seeing the indictment, that the names of the grand jurors are public, and so that's out there. The defense has really another benefit, and that is that they will likely get all the transcripts from the special grand jury proceedings, something that we don't see in Georgia very often because we don't use a special purpose grand jury. So they'll get reams of information if they get those transcripts, and they'll have testimony and sworn testimony that they can then rely on. If I were going to talk to the grand jury, the, the body that actually indicted the case, Uh, I might be interested in what particular pieces of information they found the most compelling. Remember, they saw only a slice, only a very little bit of the case. And, you know, the the presentation to this grand jury, the criminal grand jury, was small compared to the eight months of testimony that went on before the special purpose grand jury. But you would still want to know what pieces did you find compelling? Why did you find it compelling? Uh, were there questions that you had at the end of the day? You're, the judge is not going to allow them to get into grand jury deliberations, uh, but but getting some feedback is almost like having a focus group or a mock jury. Uh, if you're preparing for trial, you'll get the benefit of their gut impression uh, before they have their vote. By the way, that's exactly what prosecutors are accused of always doing, indicting a ham sandwich. They have access to a kind of focus group and asking those very questions. And grand jurors themselves can actually ask questions. So I'll be curious to see what questions they may have had. And if I were the defense counsel, I'd be trying to pick that all apart. Elliot Williams, Michael Moore, thank you both. Great to be with you. Now, look at this clock, everyone. We are literally minutes away from the United Auto Workers' strike. So we're going to go live as people are gathering now for the strike to begin. We're seeing live pictures right now in Wayne, Michigan, one of the areas that will be striking if there is no agreement. This is what's happening. We are 10 minutes away. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. We're seeing a lot right now, just moments away at this point from that strike deadline. The deadline to avert it is just about five minutes away, everyone. This is a consequential moment, as you can imagine. We already heard them talk about the idea of three um, attacking all three all at once, the big three with this looming now strike. The significance cannot be overstated. We now are going to go on site right now in Wayne, Michigan. Um, Gabe Cohen is on the scene right now, minutes away, Gabe, from the UAW contract expiring. What's the scene like out there? 
Well, Laura, it's, it's upbeat. It's even a little bit frantic. I mean, you're watching history play out behind us. Take a look behind me. These are the first demonstrators who have been pouring in uh, since the news broke just about an hour ago that this would be one of the first three locations where this strike would begin in, well, just about six, seven minutes from now. Uh, we've seen hundreds of people arriving. We know that Wayne is just one of three, as I mentioned. Wentzville, Missouri is going to be one of the other locations. Toledo, Ohio, a Stellantis plant there is going to be one of the locations. Just 13,000 UAW members are going to be on strike. Obviously a small fraction of their total membership, about 145,000 people, but they say this tactical strike, Laura, is just the beginning. And that's what we're hearing from people here outside of this Ford plant, that this is just the start. And they wanted to be here right at midnight when we're expecting Sean Fain, the head of the union, to also be on this picket line to send the signal that they are in for the long run. Laura? I mean, this is four minutes away, a significant moment. You see the signs that are behind you talking about what to do next. Gabe Cohen, thank you so much. We're going to come right back to you after this short break with the strike about to begin. Everyone stay here for our live coverage. Our breaking news tonight, everyone, it looks like thousands of workers are on strike against the big three automakers. We are just moments away, really, from the deadline. Seconds, really. I want to go right now to CNN's Gabe Cohen at the Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan. Gabe, the UAAW members, excuse me, are now officially on strike. You can hear the horns right now. You are there in Wayne, Michigan, where the UAW president, Sean Fain, and other members are already on the picket line. What is the mood like where you are right now? This is very significant. Laura, it is. It's history. It's the first time we have seen this simultaneous strike against the big three automakers in the United States. We're outside a Ford plant right now, and you can probably hear that energy. It has been a bit chaotic here the last few minutes. Hundreds of people flowing in to be on this initial strike line. You can see it behind me. This is history playing out. Now, I want to bring in, it was Ashley, is that right? Amanda, excuse me. Amanda Sinclair. Amanda. Amanda, you work on the box line, you said, for Ford. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so you are now on strike along with about 3,000 other people who work here at the factory. Um, tell me how you're feeling tonight. I feel it's worth it being out here on strike because we need more money. Like the cost of living that went up. So that's why I'm out here. I just got off work and I came out here to strike. You were working until just a few minutes ago? Yeah. Okay. And what to you in this negotiation is most important? What are you looking for? Cost of living, more money. Um, Everything that we asking for. As of tomorrow, it seems you're going to be on a strike pay. Is that your understanding, making about $100 a day? Yeah, that's not enough at all. Yeah, how are you going to get by, and how long are you ready to be on that picket line fighting, making only $100 a day? I don't know how I'm going to survive, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to be out here striking. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amanda. appreciate it. And again, if you look behind me, Laura, this is what history looks like. Hundreds of people, we know there are 3,000 members uh, who are gonna be striking at this location, just one of three. There's also a GM plant in Wentzville, Missouri, and uh, a Stellantis plant in Toledo, Ohio. Between the three, about 13,000 members. The question is, Laura, 
How much of a disruption is that going to cause to the auto manufacturing industry here in the United States? Because obviously, uh, when cars can't be finished, if certain parts can't be made, it could shut the whole process down across the country. There's concern about that and about the economic impacts. But that's not what tonight is about. As you can hear, you can hear the energy people who are excited and it seems like they are ready uh, for this to potentially last a while. How long is a mystery. It just started about, as you know, two minutes ago. I mean, just thinking about the significance, the woman you just spoke to coming off of work, prepared now to strike, waiting, she says, perhaps as long as it would take to get what is owed to them and their beliefs, using the phrase that she it thinks it's worth it to do so. 13,000 members, I mean, there are these three locations now across the country. Are the major automakers, Gabe, saying anything tonight about now where we are on strike? Well, look, we've heard from the president of Ford today. We know there has been frustration from these automakers who feel like the union um, has waited, has not negotiated in good faith, that they have offered large pay increases up to 20 percent. We know the union is seeking 40 percent, but it seems like there is still a wide gap between them listening uh, to these car companies talk tonight and basically say they have come to the table. But as of now, there is, seems to have been little progress, Laura. I mean, they're talking a lot about these tiers, people who are being uh, working in the same positions, getting paid at different amounts, hoping to end that, of course. Just looking at the energy behind you, Gabe, since you've arrived, it has increased almost exponentially in the size of the crowd behind you. Drivers going by, honking, likely in support of what is happening right now. And by the way, we did invite the three executives from all three of the auto companies. They have declined to join us tonight. Gabe, we're going to keep checking back with you. Stay there and keep us informed about what's happening on the ground. Joining me now is Congresswoman Haley Stevens, a Michigan Democrat who supports the strikers. Congresswoman Stevens, they are officially on strike. It happened moments ago. It is historic. And you are standing in solidarity with the UAW members. How significant is this strike? Well, you've got that right. I'm absolutely standing alongside the hardworking men and women of the UAW. And I want to thank Gabe for being out with the worker striking. I think Amanda's story is incredibly significant. A woman who just got off her shift and who's now joined the picket line saying, I want a better deal. And the American people have to understand it's not easy to strike. It is nerve wracking. A lot is put on the line. But the outcome of this has got to be a better deal for the workers. And that's what we're seeing play out. That's why we're in this position. And I'm going to be standing by the UAW through and through. I mean, just the anxiety. And and I'm so glad that you mentioned the real human element of this as we're talking a lot about manufacturing and what it's going to be in terms of the economy and areas around um, what how will impact the big three. For every person who is on this line, every person contemplating whether to strike has to consider exactly what you're talking about, what it will mean to them immediately over the next days, weeks, perhaps even months ahead, and what it was like over the next four years. Thank you for bringing that to our attention and reminding us, Congresswoman. Also, though, among the UAW's demands is a 40 percent pay increase over a four-year period. It also includes the restoration of cost of living pay raises, a 32-hour work um, with 40 hours of pay. Are these fair asks? 
Well, I'm certainly not in the negotiating boardroom, but I think it's very fair for the workers to ask for their fair share. And I want to be crystal clear about what's taking place right now. Three plants between the big three in three different states are on strike. There's oftentimes no question from large automakers when they decide to permanently close plants. We've seen that happen in droves over the last 10, 15 years, dozens of plants shutting down. This has continued to happen in the industrial Midwest while record profits uh, are are received by the, the large companies. And I'm proud of Michigan manufacturers. I'm so proud of the moment we're in. We were the ones who rose to the industrial call to action during the pandemic. We've continued to grow in industry out of a uh, managed bankruptcy at, that I worked on in President Obama's administration. I saw the UAW make concessions alongside many stakeholders. And now it's time to get fair share. A strike is painful, but the outcome and the long-term benefits of this, not just for the workers, but for our economy as a whole, are on the horizon. Really important also that the Ford CEO, Jim Farley, spoke earlier and talked about a 40% pay raise, saying that a 40% pay raise would actually bankrupt his company. Of course, a, a common retort to that is, well, what about the pay raises people like yourself and your position would actually get? What's your reaction to his comments that this could potentially bankrupt this these industries? Well, Ford has made billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars in just the first six months of this year. So I somewhat question the, the bankruptcy consideration, but certainly we... We want to have a Ford Motor Company. We will continue to have a Ford Motor Company. And I encourage everyone to continue to negotiate in, in good faith. We're seeing some signs of progress when we hear that the companies are willing to meet on increased wages. But the tiers that the the, the, the tier system that the UAW is asking for, certainly COLA, bringing COLA back, which was uh, got a uh, negotiated as off the table 14 years ago. We'd like to see that come back. And and again, I'm not negotiating this deal, but I am standing by the UAW. And I think people should listen to Mr. Fain right now and what he's pushing forward. See him with the UAW workers who are shaking his hand, who are appreciating someone who's of the UAW working alongside his brothers and sisters, and not just shaking hands with politicians or other VIPs. He's doing this just like what you're seeing at the Wayne Assembly plant uh, in Michigan here tonight. I believe he's actually going to be joining that particular (laughs) picket line momentarily, if not already, that they are officially on strike. You know, President Biden has spoken about himself as being the most pro-union president in the history of this country. He apparently has spoken with both the UAW president, Sean Fain, and the leader of leaders of the major automakers earlier today, many people are wondering when they think about the role of, obviously, a president in a negotiation of such significance, but how much realistically can he do to address this situation, Congresswoman? Well, certainly President Biden has shown his pro-labor chops uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, passage and requiring fair labor standards all throughout 
the bills that he has signed into law, also the infrastructure law that we signed in, that he signed in 2021. And I saw the lines of union members who were at the White House for that signing. Uh, people came coming from their from their locals, and so. Look, I, I think the the president is going to continue to be a responsible um, negotiator here in, in terms of not necessarily being in the boardroom for the negotiation, but listening to the stakeholders and encouraging what is the best outcome. But as a lawmaker, I will tell you, I knew when we passed these laws that workers were going to need to get dealt in. And that is why I have been following these negotiations so closely and spending the time with the individuals, my very constituents who are of the UAW, asking them how they are feeling, what is going on in their daily lives. And I cannot tell you how exhausted workers are, how many people are doing the job of two people. We've got dual income earning households at, yes, the 40 hours a week. You can't look at your cell phone. This is tough work. It puts the world on wheels. We've got so much to be proud of here in Michigan. And the outcome of this is going to be a standard, not just for the United States of America, but for the world. The world is watching. We certainly are. Representative Stevens, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I want to bring in now Todd Dunn, everyone, president of the UAW Local 862 in Louisville, Kentucky. Todd, thank you for joining us this evening. Um, you've been at the Union Hall all night. How are you guys feeling knowing that now the strike is here? Well, you know, we've really uh, lived and breathed over the last two years trying to uh, represent our membership, get them prepared while simultaneously trying to be super transparent with the membership and get all of uh, the resolutions and taking care of that and getting it where it needs to be. Uh, and, and we're not uh, we're not exhausted by any means. We're ready to go uh, as far as it takes uh, to get an agreement. We're mindful of the process. We're mindful of the families that it's affecting. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uncertainties out there. But right now we are focusing, even with not being selected as a current target, we're focusing on trying to put together uh, the best plan forward so we can continue to keep a perimeter around our members and our local. Uh, and I feel that we're there, but we're just going to have to continue to push forward. And Todd, just so people to understand, because you heard from the UAW president talking about the, the individual locations that are going to be striking. You are not at one of those facilities, but I, I do wonder just for just to fully understand it. What does that mean for those those areas that have not been targeted specifically to strike? Are, are you working at all? Is it about preparing to support? What does it look like for you and your team? Right. So in Louisville, over the Louisville assembly plant, right, where we employ over 3000 UAW members uh, currently there, they actually shut down operations for the evening. Now they'll be returning tomorrow. Uh, they were trying to put together a preparation plan over at the Kentucky truck plant. It's a little bit different scenario. Uh, we've got almost 9,000 UAW members working. Of course, the Kentucky truck plant represents almost 54,000, uh, I'm sorry, 54% of uh, all the North American profits, right? For Ford Motor Company. So uh, that engine, uh, Ford Motor Company wants to keep turning as much as possible. So 
while we're trying to prepare our membership, we also want to still be a part of that contingency plan, if need be, that we can interact and engage and uh, and be ready to go on strike if necessary. Really important to think about just the the sheer scope of the number of workers at the different areas the role that each individual is playing and contemplating. I mean, just trying to get everyone even on the same page about striking must have been something quite um, extraordinary. And, and Todd, there's an economic report out, and it says that a 10-day strike could cost the U.S. $5.6 billion, and about $2 billion of that would be borne by consumers who wouldn't be able to get car repairs. What do you want people to know who are the the non-workers and non-UAW employees that are concerned about this? So, you know, one of the things key is to try and go back and fact check some of the things that's happened in America. Right. So in 2019, since 2019, new cars have gone up 34 percent. Our wages have gone up six percent. That debt is there and can't be misconstrued. In the same time, the CEO pay has gone up 40%. So, you know, I use an example of myself. Uh, about 10 months ago, I ordered a new Bronco. And in that time, the price went up $13,000, almost $600. I finally decided that I couldn't afford to buy that vehicle just because of the cost that was going to be there. And that was prior to us getting into any type uh, of negotiations with Ford Motor Company. The business model is becoming more profitable. And we have to share those profits. And you have to think back to... When we went through all the trouble and the bailouts, Ford Motor Company did their thing. We did our thing. The American Auto Worker gave back. We gave back and said, we'll help you out. And when we helped the Ford Motor Company out and we helped the auto companies, they said, we'll, we'll help you out when we get back on our feet. They haven't done that. So that really sets back in our minds, right? And also looking at the cost of living. So, you know, a lot of folks talk about this 40%. Well, if you look at an entry-level employee, right, that comes in at that level of pay, they have to go eight years to get full pay. One of my great friends, Joe Williams, he said, I got my letter. I just got full pay. Eight years. If you look at a 30-year career, that's almost a third of a career trying to get to full wages. Uh, and it's just not equitable. Uh, it's not there. It's not a job. We need to get back to career jobs in America instead of having job shopping and having multiple jobs. So that really sticks out. And really what makes us passionate about what we believe in and our members to see what we do as union leaders is not an opportunity. It's a way of life. And we have to engage and continue to try to lift up our membership. And we always have to remember as we're lifting our membership up, everyone else will benefit from it as well. So there is things that we have. There are things that we have to worry about. There are challenges while we don't want to strike, Ford Motor Company has had this plan, had this data in front of them for quite some time. So, you know, I, I wish Ford Motor Company would put a little more effort on coming to the table, uh, coming to the table with some realistic uh, uh, objectives. And we're ready. Our national negotiators are key. Our leadership, Fain, President Fain. Uh, yeah. Think of Chuck Browning. Chuck Browning is just absolutely a wonderful leader. We have the most dialed in discipline, attention to detail, negotiators, mm. and the whole process that I've seen in my 28 years. And we're wow. taking everything in account, and that's to include our consumers. And we want our consumers and the public to know what we're struggling for, and we want to be there for them. And yeah. on top of that, that's why we're doing so much volunteer uh, and philanthropic mm. volunteering during our strike. You know, we're going to have almost 8,000 hours a week going towards yeah. uh, uh, philanthropic efforts. So, 
We, Todd, we, we, we're, we're we watching what's happening right now. And oh, I don't want to cut you off. I'm sorry. We're, we're, we're watching right now what's unfolding even in Wayne, Michigan. I'm, I'm so glad that you stopped by. Thank you for joining the program because we needed to hear the information that you gave us. And I appreciate you taking the time to break that down for us. Todd Dunn, thank you, everyone. We've got a lot more to come on our breaking news. We've got thousands of auto workers walking off the job tonight on strike against the big three automakers. Does this leave President Biden stuck between a kind of rock and a hard place? We'll figure it out next. Let's check back in now with CNN correspondent Gabe Cohen. Gabe, you were on the picket lines on this historic night with the protesters. What's going on? Well, Laura, the crowd is growing and has been growing over the past hour or so. Hundreds of people now outside of this Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan. I want to bring one of them in right now. This is Joel. Joel, uh, you're a car inspector for Ford. Is that yes, right sir. here in the yes, plant? Yes, sir. You're now on strike. Yes, sir. Uh, how long are you going to be here tonight? I'm going to be here as long as I have to be until, you know, I mean, as long as I'm going to be sticking with my brothers and sisters all night long. I understand they're going to have people here through the night, uh, striking each of the gates. Uh, do you have a sense of what the scene's going to be like in the coming hours? I mean, it's going to be, like I said, we're going to be here as long as we can, you know, until we get until we get what we deserve, you know, it's time. You know, these, these CEOs make a lot of money and they don't want to spread the wealth, you know. They make billions of dollars. We give up a lot of stuff over the years and it's time to get back, you know what I mean? What we heard from the CEO of Ford today was that if they gave in, the car manufacturers feel like if they gave in to every one of the union's demands, it would bankrupt their companies. Uh, what do you make of that? I, I don't believe that one bit. Ford's been around for over 100 years, 120 years. I mean, I don't believe that one bit. You know, they own all kinds of properties, you know. Let's be real here. I mean, they, they know how to make money. They've been doing it for years. They're making billions of dollars for years. And we're the ones that make them that money, and it's time to get what's right, what's fair, what's fair to us. Well, you know Joel, I mean? yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for Thank spending you. a few minutes with Appreciate us. It. And now we're going to bring in Congresswoman Talib, who's with us. Uh, you've been here for, I've noticed, the past at least a few minutes. What do you make of the scene that's been building behind you? I mean, I'm so incredibly proud of the courage. I mean, you heard them. They've sacrificed so much. In 2009, I remember the American people didn't bail out the big three so they can screw over their own workers. They shouldn't have to beg for a pension, for them to have the cost of living adjustment that has been part of a UAW contract since 1948. And we're in 2023. They took it out because they wanted to make sure they could stay afloat, they could survive. And now that they're making record profit, they're turning their backs on their own workers. And I know you talked a little bit earlier on our air about your own family experience, your father's experience as a union worker. What these workers are in for in the coming days, potentially weeks or months, making only strike pay $100 a day, how long do you think this can last and how much of a strain will this be on your constituents and your economy here in Michigan? I mean, look, the economy is not working for them now. They're really struggling every single day. Some of them have to work seven days a week in this plants. That's not a life. And you know what? Like the big three sat for five weeks on the UAW proposal, five weeks, and they started hustling this past week. Well, they, they moved too slowly and that's why they did, you know, some violations to the labor board. They were tired of it and fed up. They weren't taking them seriously. I mean, look, 
they're making record profits, but at the same time, they just did shareholder buyouts. They're doing all this stuff and saying, hey, we can't do this. We'll go broke. Well, you just increase uh, the cost of cars by 30% and your own workers, the workers that actually build the cars can't even afford your own cars because you're price gouging, because all you care about is profits and you know, you're getting really, really greedy. I mean, in 09, that wasn't the goal in 2023 that we're looking back and I'm saying, oh my God, the majority of UAW workers don't even have a pension. What do you say to other constituents in Michigan who would look at this situation and say, this is going to cost the state's economy tens of maybe hundreds of millions of dollars potentially, and it's going to really hurt people across this state. The strike needs to end. What do you make of that? I'll tell you, in Michigan, everyone knows somebody that works in one of these plants. There's been a UAW worker and a retiree that's been struggling. Every single person you met in Michigan, I don't care if you go to the Upper Peninsula, the Southeastern Michigan, Taurus Plant, anywhere. And I'll tell you this much, they know this economy ain't working for the working people. They know they're struggling every single day. And guess what? Most of us are subsidizing for the fact that they're not paying their workers enough. So focus on the CEOs, focus on the corporate greed of Ford, Jim Farley, the CEOs that again are literally dragging their feet, pretending that they don't have the resources to again give back to the same workers that sacrificed in 09. They're struggling, do something about it, but everyone should be blaming them. They're the ones who are dragging their feet. They're the ones pretending that they have all these like excuses that continue to come up. And it's really important for the American yeah. people to know this. We keep doing so much for them, but when it comes to us, they turn our back, turn well, their backs on us. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate it, Laura. I'm going to send it back to you. Gabe Cohen, fascinating to think what's happening right now, to see all the people behind you, to hear from members of Congress. We've got lots more to cover tonight on our breaking news. The auto workers are on strike now against the big three, and they're taken to the streets tonight. It's official. They are officially on strike. We've got Gabe Cohen in Wayne, Michigan right now. You're hearing from Sean Fain, the UAW president. And they want to call us greedy. They got the whole thing backwards. What would you say to the CEOs of these auto companies that say uh, the the union has not been acting in good faith, that there were delays? What, What do you make of that? Let's talk about what good faith is. They've had our economic demands for six weeks. We've told them from day one, we expect a bargain now, not wait till the end. They waited till last week. We had to file unfair labor practice charges on two companies to get them to come to the table. So they waited till the last week to want to get down to business. Shame on them, and what they're saying is complete BS. You heard the CEO of Ford say that it would bankrupt them if they met your demands. What do you think of that? I think it's a joke. You know what? They could double our pay right now. Labor, the cost of labor that goes into a vehicle is 5% of the vehicle. They could double our wages and they could not raise the price of vehicles, and they would still make billions of dollars. It's a lie like everything else that comes out of their mouth. The strategy strategy is three facilities. What impact do you think that could make on the auto industry as a whole across this country? We'll find out, you know what, and it's going to keep on building if they don't come to the table for our members. Are more facilities going to feel this? Are more facilities going on strike? If they don't don't take care of our members, they will. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we got it, we got it, we got it. Gabe, we're hearing a lot right now, our breaking news. We just heard from Sean Fain, who was talking to our own Gabe Cohen in Wayne, that is the president of the UAW. They are on strike tonight. You heard from him talking about he called it BS, essentially, and a joke that the notion that they could bankrupt these industries by simply submitting to their demands, they could double their pay in some respects. The unfair labor practices that were described in terms of having to file that Rashida Tlaib also mentioned with Gabe Cohen. Um, There's so much more that's happening. Gabe, you just had
had a chance to talk to Sean Fain. He is the person to speak to. He is demanding that they come to the table for the members. And I think he said to you that if they do not do so, there could be more areas that strike. Yeah, and that's what we've been wondering. Look, we're talking about uh, 145,000 UAW members across the country. Right now, as of midnight, about 13,000 are on strike, less than 10%. Three facilities, one, uh, this Ford plant here in Michigan, uh, a GM plant in Missouri, and uh, a Stellantis plant in Toledo, Ohio. The question has been, this tactical strike, Laura, what will the impact be? How much of a hit uh, will the auto industry take if perhaps they can't get certain parts or they can't finish uh, cars, if they can't get them off the line? Uh, It's a question of what will be the ripple effect through not just the auto industry, but the greater economy. And yes, as we just heard from Sean Fain, he's saying, look, we're starting with three facilities, but it could grow from there. And that's got to be a scary thing to hear if you're the CEO of one of these three big automakers uh, who have said they can't afford to meet the demands uh, that UAW has put forward, that the union has put forward, that 40% pay increase uh, in the next few years, as well as retirement benefits, uh, cost of living adjustments. They said they can't meet all of those demands, it will bankrupt them, but also it's difficult to imagine to imagine they can afford to allow a strike like this to linger. Again, the big question in the days ahead, three facilities, three different states, what will be the impact, Laura? Well, on his words, we'll have to find out, won't we, on this very notion here. And again, we have reached out to the executives of these three major auto dealers and auto um, makers, and they have not taken the opportunity to come and join us here this evening. But I am joined now by Alyssa Diebold, chair of the Macomb County Democratic Committee. Alyssa, we are in the midst of history. President Biden has called himself, as you know, the most pro-union president in the history of this nation. He also has a a green energy agenda. And I'm wondering when you're talking about what we're seeing, what we're looking at right now, does this strike now place President Biden between really two of his top policy goals? You know, green energy is is vital. Our, our, our world is on fire and it needs to be a priority, but it needs to be done in a way which the administration has said. It needs to be done in a way that the workers are engaged and those jobs don't go elsewhere, that the parts are made here. I'd love it if the parts are made in Michigan. Um, our governor has been fighting for that, um, to, to, you know, forever. So I think, uh, you know, if, if we can accomplish the climate goals and and really make some strides there without hurting our workforce that is the time and talent that goes into making all of these vehicles it is a win-win for the planet and the economy i mean what we're seeing right now we're watching the uaw president walking through this crowd he clearly has supporters that are there who are fully supportive of what he is speaking of on behalf of obviously President Biden needs these automakers to sustain his policies he's talking about. But President Biden has also encouraged all parties to stay at the table. What could this strike really cost the president politically? We're about 400 and I think 17 days away from a general election. I'm counting down too, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I think that it's, it's you know, this is a huge part of what's going to what's going to be on the ballot um, next year. 
But there's been so much in President Biden's administration. I mean, I'm a millennial and it's wild to me to think that President Biden is the going to be the most progressive president of my lifetime. But here we are. I mean, that that is a reality. And I think that the, the infrastructure plan, I mean, you're driving down freeways around the country and seeing signs that say this project was funded by this administration. That is monumental. So not only doing the work, but taking the credit, which I think, you know, we've struggled with a little bit in the past. So I think if, you know, everyone needs to stay at the table, absolutely. But the workers absolutely deserve to get fair pay and pay increases to face a 2023-2024 cost of living. I mean, that, that's not what they're getting paid now. And it's clear that, you know, the rising inflation, you know, they need those cost of living increases. Alyssa Diebolt, thank you so much for joining us. I want to remind people the current top base pay for UAW is 67226 They're asking for 80000 plus on this. And we're looking for 40%. They said a raise across four years. As you mentioned, the cost of living increases restored. Traditional pension plans as part of it. Retiree health coverage and care coverage. Limits on part-time workers and forced overtime as well. A lot to get to there. Thank you for joining us tonight. I want to bring in CNN political commentator Ashley Allison. Also, Charlie Dent is here with us, a former Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. Glad to have you both here. Let me begin with you, Ashley, because, look, there are two real constituencies at play here. And and we can't overstate the significance of an historic strike like this. In a summer, by the way, of strikes or potential strikes, If you are President Biden looking at this politically through that lens, you've called yourself the most pro-union president in the history of America. You promoted green policy energy. You know that you need the auto workers and you need the auto, auto companies. What do you do now? Well, he continue. He should continue to encourage both parties to stay at the negotiating table. But if I'm President Biden, I'm looking at who's on that picket line, and I'm looking at the diversity. These are young workers and older workers, people from all different races, people of different genders, and they're all standing up for what they believe is right, and that's a fair living wage. And so President Biden has to support the workers at this moment. Michigan is a battleground state, but so are so many other states that have strong union backgrounds, just like my home state of Ohio. And so these workers are not asking for drastic changes. They're asking for things that the um, average American respects and supports. And so if President Biden stands with the workers, as he has so many other times, I think it will fare well for him politically in the long run, because nobody wants the rich just to keep getting richer and the poor to keep on suffering. You know, it's an important point. You think about the, the minimum wage debate more broadly as well happening. Charlie, I want to read for you, well, the president, frankly, is in a very precarious position. And based on what Ashley's talking about in particular, looking at who's on that picket line, is there a way, though, to reconcile what seems to be a conflicting agenda in some respects? I mean, there's going to have to be the political pivot in this realm. But what do you see as how he can resolve this conflict of the agenda in particular? Well, if I'm Joe Biden, I want to see this this strike uh, ended rather quickly uh, because let's face it, this economy, while it has been pretty resilient uh, so far, you know, it's still pretty fragile and he's going to, the, the impacts, ripple effects of this strike uh, could be pretty significant, not only to the industry, but to the broader economy, as Gabe had just stated. So this is a real problem. Also, much of the focus 
You got to remember, too, the UAW is also quite unhappy with many provisions of the IRA right now, the Inflation Reduction Act and the green subsidies. So this industry, these traditional big three are competing not just with each other, of course, but they're competing with all the transplants. You know, the, the, the German, the other European car companies, the Asian companies, Japanese, Korean, uh, many of which are not going to be on strike. Uh, so I think that this this issue is difficult for Joe Biden because he's selling himself as pro-union. He's also selling Bidenomics. But this strike could have the could have the effect of slowing down this economy at a time when many people are concerned. Wages have not been keeping up with price increases. Yes, inflation is, is moderated a bit, but it went up so much that people are struggling. Their real incomes have not been able to keep pace uh, with the price increases. So, Von Biden, I want this thing to end quickly. You know, you look at that, the, the feeling and perception. I often say if perception is king, then feeling is queen. And how people think about how you feel about the economy, the data points and what it means to you. I mean, you know, actually, the, the UAA, excuse me, UAW has declined to endorse Biden so far. But the UAW president, Sean Fains, we just spoke to moments ago on this very airwaves, believes it would actually be a disaster if Trump were president again. And so there's this idea of what now and the politics of it. On the sa- at the same time, you've got politicians who are going to po- try to pick a side. They're going to try to use this information, this strike to their advantage. What should happen? Well, Fain is right. It would be a disaster if Trump is president for many reasons, but mainly uh, one reason is because he is a anti-union person. He does not believe the Republican Party traditionally is not a union backing party. I think the other thing is you, you have to pick a side, but, you know, they talk about the 40 percent increase that the CEOs have made and that they're just asking for the, the fair share. And then the big three say, well, um, you know, we'll go bankrupt. Well, we would say the math ain't math in here, mm-hmm. right? Because it seems like you continue to make more money, but the workers are not getting the fair their fair share. Now, the challenge that Joe Biden will have on this, this campaign is to help connect the dots that this is not his fault. This is the CEO's fault. And I'm with you, the workers. Whether you're an auto worker, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a grocery store worker, if you're in a union, I'm with you. And inflation is high. I'm working to keep it down. But I'm also working with and standing with you to make sure your wages go up. And that's a winning argument. Charlie, I'll give you the last word. Well, look, I I was around when this industry had to be bailed out. GM and then Chrysler, not Ford. Uh, and you know, I come from steel country. You know, our industry was never bailed out. And you know, this is. And I think you know, I think the UAW has to be concerned about the broader public perception uh, that if this industry gets in trouble again, and I don't know what's going to happen with Ford when they're talking bankruptcy, but are they going to come back to the taxpayers to make this right? So I think really it's in everybody's interest to resolve this situation as quickly as possible. Uh, for the benefit of the broader American economy. I understand they want the, the workers want more money. Everybody wants more money. Uh, but, you know, we are dealing in a, a difficult economy, uh, despite what many are saying about how rosy it is. There are storm clouds on the horizon, uh, and uh, this strike could make things worse. So it needs to be resolved fast. Well, we're 43 minutes in, but history is happening right now. Ashley Allison, Charlie Dent, thank you both so much. Going to go to a quick break. We're going to come back, though, with more of our breaking news coverage. The strike is here. United Auto Workers on strike against the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, all at once. (laughs) 
Our breaking news tonight, auto workers are on strike against the big three tonight. Here to discuss CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. Also, he's the ed- senior editor for The Atlantic. Also with us tonight is CNN political analyst Scott Jennings, who was also a special assistant to President George W. Bush. Gentlemen, this is quite a time we live in. It was noted as the summer of strikes for a while and also the aversion of some strikes. And now we have such a moment of significance. Let me begin with you here, Ron, because you have got now, we're seeing history being made the three automakers, the mm-hmm. strike of the UAW, a president who calls himself the most labor or the pro labor and pro union president of all times. What is your impression tonight? Yeah, look, uh, there's the issues about the short term impact on the economy, but this really, I think, is bringing to a boil the fundamental long term uh, tension in Joe Biden's uh, clean energy. Uh, agenda. You know, the, the trio of bills that he passed in his first two years has, in fact, is, in fact, generating an enormous uh, investment boom, uh, over $140 billion in investment from private companies in clean energy vehicles alone just since he took office. But, Laura, most of that money is going into red states whose political representatives oppose the programs that are that are generating the investment and which are also right-to-work states where it is hard for unions to organize. That is the backdrop for this strike. The UAW's fear is that the auto industry is using one transition, a technological transition, from the internal combustion engine to the EV to mask a second transition, which is moving more of their production out of unionized facilities into either non-union joint venture uh, uh, projects in the, in the north or uh, into the south. And, and they are worried that they, the uh, administration the, is inadvertently financing this transition because there is an enormous amount of money going to the companies uh, to finance the construction of these new EV plants. So I think getting this right is going to be critical not only for Biden, but for really any future Democratic president, if they are going to sustain support for this long-term transition they want in our energy economy. One could say also Republicans have to get this right for, you know, the the political cynics out there can say there might be a moment to seize and capitalize on here based on what you're talking about. Scott, how do you see it? Well, a couple of things. Number one, I agree with Ron, this uh, this tension between the transition to electric vehicles versus traditional automobiles, I think, is uh, uh, culturally significant, economically significant. And I, and I agree with him on on the backdrop. Uh, I also think that there's something to be said just about the current economic conditions in the country. I mean, we're living through uh, massive inflation during Joe Biden. These workers know that they're asking for big raises over 40 percent and they want to be paid five days a week for working four. I think a lot of it has to do with, frankly, the inflationary pressures that are on uh, top of the shoulders of, of average everyday working people, which these UAW people are. So if you're looking for the political implications of it, obviously the Republicans are pounding Joe Biden over inflation and the inflation uh, polling on this shows it's the single biggest drag on his uh, economic approval is the view that he just has caused or not at least not done enough uh, to control inflation. So we'll see how long this strike goes on. Uh, but uh, I, I largely agree with Ron. This is a fraught moment for, for Joe Biden. He's already pretty soft in terms of his own job approval. Uh, I think his campaign right now is uh, suffering some internal strife from his own party. And you throw this on top of it, which could cause a, a further softening in, in the economy. Uh, it's, a, it's a troubling moment for, for him and his political future. And the you know, areas Laura, of, yeah, go ahead, Ron, quick, I, go ahead. I was going to say, 
you know, th- th- their their tone has noticeably, notably shifted in the administration. Yeah. You know, this spring, the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, who was formerly the Mich- Michigan governor, went out to Silicon Valley and said the administration was, quote, agnostic about where the companies were investing and creating uh, these new jobs and these new clean energy plants. Well, a few weeks ago, the Energy Department put down $15 billion between the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act to encourage the companies not to open new plants that might be joint ventures and non-unionized or in right-to-work states, but to retool their existing unionized plants to build the uh, you know the key components of the EVs, particularly uh, the batteries. So uh, Sean Fain's message to Biden, I think, has gotten through that the administration needs to be aware of kind of the larger implications of what this EV transition might might mean. But you have Trump out there also who is relentlessly attacking all elements of what Biden is doing to try to promote you know the transition from the internal combustion engine to EV, and specifically saying it will destroy the auto industry in Michigan, Mm. uh, which is the single employer of auto workers in the country. Ron Brownstein, Scott Jennings, something tells me the administration might have a lot to say tomorrow, and certainly those who are vying for the RNC nomination as well. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Our breaking news tonight, the United Auto Workers are on strike against the big three automakers. Welcome to history. Let's check back in with um, correspondent Gabe Cohen. Gabe, you've got some breaking news? Yeah, Laura, that's right. I just grabbed Sean Fain, the head of the Auto Workers Union, in this crowd, which you can see has grown quite a bit. And he confirmed to me uh, that there will be no bargaining between the union and the automakers today. Uh, all day Friday, they're not likely going to come back to the table until Saturday. He tells me the focus for Friday is going to be on this, on the members, the 13,000 across the country, across three states that are going to be striking. But again, he told me the only chance of coming back to the table with automakers on Friday is if one of them brings a new offer, a new deal to the table. Otherwise, Laura, we're not going to see any uh, potential progress until at least Saturday. Well, this will be the beginning, it seems, of this very important moment and story Gabe Cohen, thank you so much. We're able to get so much coverage on the ground today right here from the place where the president of the auto union is actually appearing and picketing and striking. Everyone, there is a lot more to this strike, and we're going to cover it right here on CNN. But thank you for watching tonight. Our coverage does continue. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.